0: Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees, and any legal information that we discuss is not intended to be legal advice. If you have a legal problem, it is imperative that you acquaint an attorney with the facts and get the best legal advice possible. We have a great privilege today in having the preeminent legal authority in the state of Maryland, the Attorney General Brian Frosch, on the show today. Welcome to the show, Attorney General Frosch.
1: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I really have to take issue with that preeminent legal authority. I'm just a lawyer for the state.
0: Well the judges
1: are the ones who make the
0: decisions. I know Judge Barbera might disagree with me right. on that point, but she's a she's a guest coming up soon, so we can okay. we can grapple with She'll that straighten one. It out. Exactly, exactly. I'd kinda like to take some time to go through your pre attorney general days because you really have had an extraordinarily diverse and active career both politically and legally. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into the law and what you did initially?
1: Well, Bob, after I went to law school, I I, I went to law school thinking that I wanted to do public service, public policy, and uh, after I graduated from law school, I worked on Capitol Hill for about four years, and um, it got repetitive, and uh, I decided I would try private practice. And uh, I went into private practice in about 1976 and remained in private practice through the time I was in the General Assembly until I was elected Attorney General. Um, But I was elected to the House of Delegates in 1986, then to the Senate, Maryland Senate in 1994, and served there for 20 years until I was elected Attorney General in in, uh, 2014,
0: you have had quite a few things that have transpired during your legislative career. I was strolling on one of them yesterday on the Capitol Crescent Trail. Yeah. Are there any things in particular that you're especially proud of during that phase of your life?
1: Well, i got to say, there are, you know, it's like asking, uh, who's your favorite kid? But, yes, there are a bunch of things. And the Capitol Crescent Trail is one of them. I, I got the state to pay for the Capitol Crescent Trail, wasn't my idea. Some folks you know, said to me this would be a great opportunity, but I did, you know, manage to put the pieces together. And uh it's just a it's a wonderful amenity for folks who live anywhere between uh Bethesda and Georgetown. But I you know, I was the sponsor of lots of gun safety legislation culminating with uh the Firearm Safety Act of twenty thirteen we passed it in the wake of the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut and it put together best practices in gun safety from all over the country require fingerprint licensing to purchase handguns deep background checks ban the sale of assault weapons ban the sale of large capacity magazines for those weapons and uh and a bunch of other things that were that were really uh good practice. And and while we're still suffering from gun violence, we're a lot better off in Maryland than uh, we would be if we hadn't passed that law. There were other things that I did that are, we take for granted now. I, I, when I was first elected to the House of Delegates, Exxon and Texaco were exploring for oil in the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I, you. I I got legislation passed that banned oil drilling in the bay. And the same year I was the author of the Maryland Recycling Act that required all the counties to provide recycling for their constituents and we're, you know, we're many many years later, but it's a program that's taken thousands and thousands, maybe millions of tons of recyclable materials out of the waste stream and achieved great results. We're still a long way from getting rid of, getting rid of all the waste that we have. We're not but
0: composting we're not,
1: yet. We're not. In the town of Somerset, where I live, we are composting, it's, and it's really terrific. It, it dramatically reduces the amount of trash you put out at the curb to get picked up. But composting is a, a terrific thing.
0: So by way of leaping forward a little bit, one of the topics that I had kind of broached with your office is a case that sort of is, in my view, an oddity, but scares me a little bit in the realm of gun control. And that's this Malpaso versus Palazzi yeah. case, an unreported opinion out of the Fourth Circuit that mysteriously the Supreme Court seems to have developed some interest in. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I. Let me talk about the subject generally, uh, because we're about to argue that, or we may argue that case before the Supreme Court. But this is an issue that's come up repeatedly and has been settled in the Fourth Circuit for many, many years. And that is whether Maryland's law that restricts the right to carry a loaded weapon, concealed carry, as, as it's called, is constitutional. And Maryland has tough requirements. If you want to carry a weapon, you have to have threats against your life that are significant, or you have to be in a business where you're carrying cash, you're carrying valuable commodities like jewelry, diamonds, whatever. But you really have to need to carry a concealed weapon in order to get a permit to do that in Maryland. And folks have challenged it. Repeatedly throughout the years, and said so that's unconstitutional. The Second Amendment guarantees me the right to carry a loaded weapon in public, and the courts have have smacked it down repeatedly. But in this, in the case that you referred to, the Supreme Court somebody petitioned for certiorari in the Supreme Court, and the court asked us to respond to that petition, which is. A little bit unusual especially when you have a question that's been settled for as long as this one has so well,
0: in an unre- me- in unreported opinion
1: i know I-, I was
0: astonished when i saw it in the daily
1: record yeah it's i mean i sure hope that's they're, they're not going to take that case in many states it's very easy to get a concealed carry permit but in a state like ours it's not and in urban areas Uh, We've got way too much gun violence. And, well, throughout the state, we have too much gun violence. And giving somebody the opportunity to carry a weapon means that you're going to have bar fights that end instead of with a broken nose or a fat lip with somebody getting shot. And, you know, more road rage, more what might be low-level violence escalating into deadly force.
0: I mean, I I have to admit... I. My wife's family is from Finland, and so I spend a good bit of time Uh in Scandinavia. And I mean, it's simply the gun violence doesn't exist there at all, and it would never occur to anybody to be running around with their pistol in their pocket. Right. I don't know what to say.
1: The United States is unique. I mean, really, in the world, and certainly among the uh, the first world nations we're unique in this idea that everybody has a right to and needs to carry a a gun. The Second Amendment does guarantee some
0: well-regulated militia.
1: Right. (laughs) But the Supreme Court has said that applies to uh, owning in your home. We'll see if they're going to extend it to owning in the street, carrying in the street.
0: Were you a little astonished when the Heller opinion came out?
1: I was. I mean, I really thought they jumped through all kinds of hoops to try to interpret the Second Amendment to be as expansive as they uh, found it to be. But it's now the law of the land.
0: You know, that seems like a more fluid concept than it did when I was in law school. Right. I mean, we used to have a Fourth Amendment, too.
1: Yes. I mean, uh, look, they changed the law. They overruled uh, They overruled centuries of, of precedent with the Heller decision.
0: I. You know, I don't want to try and have you wading into other things but in the contemporary political environment, the present executive administration for the United States seems to think that precedents going back 200 years are irrelevant.
1: Well, I mean, this really is a new breed of justice, a new breed of judge that disregards centuries, decades of, of precedent. And the irony is that it is the conservative Wing of the judiciary that is doing it, precedent, the you know, Starry Decisis, the fact that this has been settled law for a long time carries a, a great deal of weight, and the Supreme Court has historically been very reluctant to overturn the precedents that's been in effect for a long time. But this Supreme Court has increasingly overturned cases, not just the Heller decision on guns, but Lots of labor uh, decisions and and other uh, cases that have turned the law upside down, literally in a heartbeat, as soon as the decision comes
0: out. Well, it's astonishing the net effect of the last election, where President Trump beat Hillary Clinton, that you went from Merrick Garland, who was sort of a moderate person that Obama had put up, to the, uh, to their credit, Montgomery County resident, uh, Georgetown Prep graduates, who
1: are now yes. on the court. Yes, that's right very conservative guys, but not unwilling or unwilling to to be conservative in the area of
0: respecting precedent. That's one of the things that seems so incongruous to me. And I mean, I don't mean to be unduly optimistic or a Pollyanna. I am hopeful that John Roberts will be the guy who will sort of steady the ship in the right. face of some of the winds that are buffeting us.
1: Right. Right. Me too. But <laughs> I'm not sure how, how hard we can lean on that reed.
0: So I I don't want to wade into anything that is particularly difficult, but you have gained some renown for some of the litigation done in conjunction with attorney generals from other states, Washington State, the District of Columbia, some of these other places. And I wondered if you could talk about the process whereby Maryland coordinates with other states on things that seem of importance.
1: Yeah, Bob, so, I mean, you're talking about what's happened since Donald Trump became president, and Democratic attorneys general have sued the Trump administration repeatedly, and the reason is it keeps violating the law, and it's done it in area after area. I mean, we have a number of suits to protect the environment. I mean, the Trump administration decided that Global warming's not a problem. Global and, what? Yeah, you heard about that?
0: I had heard uh, about
1: it. Yeah, it's not happening. There's no climate change. It's 60 degrees. it's November. It's been 60 degrees all week. It's barely fall here. Well, fall and when I was a kid was months earlier. Oh, yeah. But at any rate, you know, they want to reverse all of the rules that relate to greenhouse gas emissions from cars, trucks, power plants, oil rigs, industries, and we've sued them, and we've been very effective in stopping them, or at least slowing them down, and um, with respect to education, Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, thinks it's her job to stand up for these predatory, for-profit institutions that literally rip off the most vulnerable people in our society, and her job is supposed to be protecting these students who've borrowed money to pay for worthless uh, courses and worthless degrees. And even when the schools themselves go out of business and I I guess if you don't mind, I I could talk about the emoluments. I was uh,
0: going to lead into that next. I, I did want to take just a second to note that the state of Maryland has been much better about dealing with these kind of predatory trade schools than DeVos's Department of Education.
1: Yes, we have. We've gone after them, and uh, we've gotten relief for, for many of the students, but there are literally hundreds of thousands, not in Maryland all by itself, but hundreds of thousands of, of students nationally who are driven into a debt they can't discharge in bankruptcy, will live with the rest of their lives, And the law says they're supposed to get relief from that when the schools, like the ITT schools, the Corinthian schools, go belly up, and Betsy DeVos won't do it. But the emoluments case is one that I brought with Carl Racine, the attorney general of the District of Columbia. And it basically, the the emoluments clauses of the U.S. Constitution are our nation's original anti-corruption law. And they say that no federal official can accept a present or any emolument of any kind, whatever, from a foreign state. They also say that Trump can't, the president can't get anything from the United States government other than his salary. And he violates both of those clauses every day of his presidency, part because he's taking in money through the Trump post office hotel in D.C., which is his by virtue of a lease from the federal government. (laughs) <laughs> which specifically says no elected federal official can receive any benefit from this lease. So he's not entitled to that lease, and yet he's uh, getting money every day through it, and a lot of it's coming from uh, foreign countries. Well, I'm
0: sure Don Jr. and Eric are making sure there's no problems with that.
1: Yeah, I think they've got it covered. They, uh, they decided they were going to pay uh, 150000 bucks to the U.S. Treasury to disgorge their profits. Of course, they won't be transparent about what money came in, what money went out. and
0: uh, Well, surely their tax returns would show that.
1: They quite possibly would, hmm. but somehow we can't seem to find them. Huh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's the emoluments clause violations are pure corruption. I mean, he's using the White House for profit. And the, the most Obvious example is when he said, I'm going to have the G7 Summit at my resort in Florida, at the Doral Resort. That's outrageous. And uh, we're trying to hold them accountable.
0: What's astonishing to me is that he, for once, actually withdrew that notion. It seems like shame is possible.
1: (laughs) Yes, or maybe he realized he just wasn't going to be able to get it done. So what
0: is the status of this emolument litigation? Where is it taking place? Kind of what, what's the how does it
1: work? So we filed suit in the U.S. District Court in Maryland. The judge, the district court judge ruled against uh, the Justice Department when it uh, tried to dismiss our case. That decision was, made its way up to the Fourth Circuit. We got a three judge panel that tossed us out, said, nope, we're, we're dismissing the case We asked for a rehearing by all 15 judges in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in a very unusual decision, they agreed to hold what's called an en banc review, where all 15 of them are going to make the decision. That's coming up on December 12th, so we're very optimistic that we'll... uh, will be back in business after they have that hearing and write their decision.
0: And that's something that theoretically the public could attend and kind of have a little more first-hand input into what's going on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's in Richmond, but it's open to the public.
0: Now, will you be arguing this or will one of your cohort?
1: Oh, yeah, we're going to have somebody smart argue it. I'll be in It's the a audience. good
0: strategy. I wish I could do that.
1: You know, <laughs> yeah, we have we have very capable lawyers who are working on this uh, very hard. Someone from D.C. and someone from our office will, will do the argument.
0: That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. You know, you think of the Attorney General and and this is this part, you know, Bill, Bill Barr, for example, but uh-huh. there are many people who work in the Attorney General's office and keep the lights on, and I wondered if you could explain how the process works there and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so we represent uh, the governor, despite the fact that he's uh, of a different party and uh, you know has different uh, views on policy than I do, we're his lawyers. Uh, we represent the General Assembly. Same thing, you know, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, we represent them. We represent all of the executive agencies in the state and the judiciary. So um, we have we have lots of lawyers, hundreds of lawyers, really, who are uh, representing these different entities and agencies, and sometimes they get sued, we defend them, sometimes they have to, to bring a suit, we bring the suits on, on their behalf, we give them legal advice every day. And then, you know, we have uh, we have divisions that engage in affirmative litigation. Uh, first of all, we have a criminal division uh, and an organized crime unit that goes after violent crime, gangs, uh, et cetera, it's a small unit but they're uh, they're very effective. We have a consumer protection division that uh that goes after people who are cheating Marylanders. Period. Uh they they're deceiving folks and uh Uh, ripping them off, and we file suits on their behalf. Now,
0: is that uh, where the the, the predatory schools falls in, or is that a different area? Yeah, that's
1: that's where the predatory schools falls in. We uh, we sue landlords who cheat their tenants, uh, who give them living conditions that are are not habitable. Uh, There aren't any noteworthy
0: people like that, are there?
1: Well... Did file a recent case that uh, relates to a, a company that manages 9,000 units in the state, and we we allege that they have charged illegal fees when tenants move in, when they move out, uh, during their tenancy, and uh, that the uh, living conditions are not what they should be.
0: Now that wouldn't be the Kushner company,
1: would it? They uh, they own have an, an ownership interest in the uh, companies that we've sued.
0: I'm, I'm fascinated because the president was so dismissive of Baltimore and of Elijah Cummings, a wonderful man, may he rest in peace, and yet really? his son-in-law seems to, or his son-in-law's company, seems to think Baltimore is a worthy investment.
1: Yeah. Um, seems incongruous they, to me. They, they, have a, they, they do own a lot of property in the state of Maryland.
0: And what's the stage of that litigation, or is that
1: something we've early? Just, we've just filed the statement of charges a few weeks ago, and we expect it'll go to trial sometime toward the beginning of next year.
0: Next year being? 2020. 2020. Oh, that's that's relatively soon.
1: Yes. So it's an administrative process, and we can usually get to trial within three to six months. Wow. Yep.
0: And on thousands of units? Yes. Hmm. Not sure that would be well received by some people.
1: Well, um, if they uh, there's an easy way of fixing that, that is, <laughs> don't don't do wrong.
0: No, I, I think that's a good trend. I'm not sure the message has come across very effectively thus far.
1: <laughs> Perhaps not. Maybe it will now.
0: <laughs> um one of the other things, we, we've recently had some guests on. We had uh, Judge Michelle Houghton from the Court of Appeals. Uh-huh. And I go way back with Michelle through Prince George's County days. And we also had. Uh the attorney for Adnan Syed
1: on and, right.
0: and uh, Justin Brown and kind of chatting to them about things. And, and I was interested, and I don't know whether you can get into the thought process, because I know the case is presently on a petition of writ of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court. Correct. Why, why the state took cert to the Court of Appeals after the Court of Special Appeals effectively said he needed a new trial? Was there something about that case that was unique that required certiorari?
1: Yes. Okay. Um... And I, I'm, I'm I've got to keep these remarks within the framework of our uh, briefs. Sure. But this is a guy who strangled his 17-year-old girlfriend. I mean, we proved at trial that he premeditated it, strangled her to death, and the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, you have these, you have a podcast, and you have a TV show. They don't they don't get. Listeners or viewers by saying, uh, you know what? Here's a case where there was a guy who strangled his 17-year-old girlfriend to death, uh, and he really did it. That nobody's going to watch that show. Um, so the first, the the original podcast suggested that maybe there was there was some doubt, and the truth is, it, it's an overwhelming. Case and that's why we felt that it needed to be uh, needed to be reversed and uh, why we why we oppose the writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court and why we brought a writ of certiorari to our court of appeals.
0: You know, the only thing, and I I know this was part of Michelle's opinion, is that it did seem to me. And to the listeners, and there may be things that we missed, obviously we didn't sit through the trial or anything else, but this witness who puts him, and and I understand that the witness doesn't exculpate him necessarily from the murder, but the way the case was tried originally, you know, there was this particular time frame when the murder was supposedly taking place, and evidently there was an exculpatory witness who the lawyer never interviewed or made any effort to call it trial, and just my sort of trial lawyery reaction is it seems to me that 's ineffective assistance of counsel that likely prejudiced the
1: result but I, but you know th- there's well, doubtless
0: more to it than i 'm seeing
1: well here's <clears throat> here's what we say in response to that sure. in the most recent brief to the Supreme Court the um, the defense attorney understood that uh, trying to bring that in as an alibi number one wouldn't be effective because there was a time frame of hours in which you, you, her her purported testimony accounts for 20 minutes of his time sure and there were hours in which uh, over which uh, we alleged that the crime was committed um, and second of all her testimony conflicts with that of mr Syed. he told three different stories about where he was on that day and her testimony conflicts with all of those. So it would have been a not only a reasonable but a prudent decision not to call her as a witness because she makes the defendant look like a liar. So
0: from a strategic transpoint, the trial or tra- you know notion the trial lawyer made a judgment and that's kind of the final word on
1: that. Well yeah and, and uh I mean, here you have a situation where um, the lawyer died and they waited for years and years after the trial uh, to, to make the allegation that the attorney, who now can't testify, uh, committed malpractice by not getting in touch with the alibi witness. Mm-hmm.
0: Final area, because we're getting close to running out of time, two things. Um, Maryland is also involved in the opioid litigation. Right. And what's the status of that presently?
1: So we have uh, a series of different investigations and uh, cases filed. We've sued or we've brought statements of charges against uh, INSYS and its related entities. They make SUBSYS, a fentanyl-based uh, drug that you put under your tongue, and also against Purdue and the Sackler families and, and their related entities. Those cases are now uh, both stayed because INSYS and Purdue have gone into bankruptcy. Um, we are also part of a multi-state investigation of uh, opioid distributors, other manufacturers, and retailers and uh, those are ongoing. There have been settlement discussions with uh, a number. We're hopefully moving forward on on some of those. Expect to settle some. Um, But this is going to be a multi-year process, and to some extent it will turn on negotiations by all 50 states with these entities, and to some extent, it may be that we have to bring suits specifically in Maryland with individual companies in order to get redress for the addiction and death that these, uh, uh, some of these folks have caused in our
0: state. I mean, it's astonishing. And when I talked to some of our listeners about this, they all kind of scratch their head and say, so there's no criminal liability for these people who made billions of dollars distributing this extraordinarily addictive drug?
1: Um, I can't comment on that. Okay.
0: I just throw it out there. Right. You know, a concern that not crazy. Yeah. Let me just say that, but I can't. I understand completely. So the final thing I often ask people is what you like best about your job and what you like least.
1: So I love this job. Um, And the reason is it allows me to have an impact on important policy in... A hundred different ways. I mean, we are protecting Marylanders from getting ripped off, protecting them from crime. Uh, we're advancing uh, their interests, you know, and keeping our environment clean. So it it's a it's a very impactful job, uh, and that's really gratifying. It's it's hard to explain that the thing I like about it at least is I'm not allowed to talk about uh, a lot of stuff that we do, not allowed to explain a lot of stuff that we do. I have to take, as any lawyer does, um, positions in defense of my clients when I wish they hadn't done what they are alleged to have done, or when I disagree with what they are alleged to have done. Um, but that's that's really in the nature of, of being a lawyer. and we're, I, I, I call myself the people's lawyer, uh, and, and uh, that's what our office does. We also are the state's lawyer, and both are incredibly important roles.
0: I would agree, and I have to say as a longtime Marylander, I'm proud of what you're doing, and I'm so gratified that you are our attorney general, and I'd like to thank you for appearing on Everyday Law.
1: Uh, It's been great. Thank you very much for the kind words. It's been a great pleasure to be with you, Bob.
0: Hope we'll have you on again future.
1: Love to do it. All right. Thanks
0: very much. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell.
1: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.